This episode is brought to you by our incredible community of listener supporters on Patreon. Our Patreon offers listeners exclusive archival content, extended episodes, and access to community conversations diving deeper with past guests. Your monthly pledge ensures that For the Wild has the funding to keep producing informative, thoughtful, and rooted conversations and programming. All funding supports our small team of creatives, podcast production, and special For the Wild projects like our zines and slow study courses. To support us on Patreon, please visit patreon.com slash for the wild, or if you would rather make a one-time donation or recurring donation outside of Patreon, please visit for the wild.world slash donate. Hello and welcome to For the Wild podcast. I'm Ayana Young. Today I'm speaking with Maya Kosla. What's interpreted as destruction is very often, very quickly, a force of creation. Maya Kosla is a wildlife biologist and writer. She served as Sonoma County Poet Laureate 2018-2020, bringing Sonoma's communities together through poetry gatherings and field walks after the 2017 fires. Sonoma County Conservation Council, SCCC, selected her as one of the 2020 Environmentalists of the Year. Her poetry books include All Fires of Wind and Light from Sixteen Rivers Press, 2020 Penn Oakland Josephine Miles Literary Award, Keel Bone from Bear Star Press, a Dorothy Brunsman Poetry Prize, and Web of Water, Life in Redwood Creek. Her writing has been featured in documentary films including Village of Dust, City of Water, about the water crisis in rural India. Well, Maya, thank you so much for joining us today. In preparing for this interview, I've been mentally journeying, journey, journeying excuse me, back to the forest of Northern California that I miss so much, and it's a real pleasure to be able to be transported there with you today. Well, thank you. Thank you for having me. So I just want to start off by saying I'm so impressed with your wealth of knowledge on the forest of Northern California, both from a scientific and personal aspect. And as many of the listeners know this about me, uh, I have just found such a great deal of love and wisdom and connection and really familial relationships with these forests. And so I'm wondering, to ground our conversation, if you can give us an introduction to your relationship with the forest. Uh, specifically, how do you exist in relationship with these forests, and what senses are activated for you when among the trees? Oh, nice big question to start with. Um, thank you. Um, I have been working in the forests for about eight years in a more dedicated way. But before that, I think I started, if I was to say my very first interaction with the forests of Northern California was in Muir Woods National Monument where I was doing some habitat typing of Redwood Creek, which supports coho salmon and steelhead trout. And that was a lot of you know hours and hours of spending time in and next to water in the middle of the Muir Woods National Monument trees, the giants. Uh, so it was a great first exposure and completely immersive because there was this necessary work, but also there was another side that was sort of bringing into focus some of the more poetic aspects of interacting with that world. And subsequent to that, I've sort of immersed myself in forests after fire. There was always this question in Muir Woods, what if a fire went through, would you visit? How would that change things? A fire is really a part of this cycle. And that was a question for a lot of the visitors and during walks and during guided tours. And of course, not realizing that at the time, I was about to plunge into my own journey of forests and how they behave and make their incredibly powerful stage-by-stage -stage comeback after wildfire. 
And that's been, oh, I don't know. Sometimes I think of it as probably a thousand hours per year, somewhere in that neighborhood. Some of it is immersive. Now a lot of it is about just field recordings, sound recordings, poetry and still, you know, poetry workshops and even artistic installations or working with others who are interested in artistic installations. So it sort of covers quite a wide range. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Gosh, fire, uh, forest fires are such a point of contention. And I'm thinking about this connection with the forest is so clearly a deeply emotional one. I would imagine for both of us and with such closeness, I think comes an intimate understanding of change and that change is not always a bad thing. And so I think it's so important to recognize the dynamism of the forest and its deep rooted ability to adapt even beyond our own comprehension. And I'm wondering, how do you mourn for some of the human wrought changes to the forest while also bearing witness to its adaptive capacity. It's so interesting. One of my recent poems, once we have mourned and looked away, there's a change that comes into the forest without our permission. We don't know where it comes from. It's mysterious and deep. And there we go. The biodiversity starts to fall into place. Um, stage by stage. So there is an initial state of mourning, I think, when I see that through our own current knowledge and capacities, we're putting ourselves as, you know, uh, homes and communities in, in danger and sometimes you know, too much danger because we, there's so much, you know, the last few years I've evacuated three times from home and that spires have come in within two miles, embers have come in probably closer. And so the fire is being seen from human eyes and human eyes are recognizing fire as a destructive force. In forests, fire is one of the cycles, sort of like hurricanes, volcanoes, st big storms, snow. It's one of the cycles. And in particular, what's interpreted as destruction is very often, very quickly, a force of creation. What is dis determined as a mortuary is very quickly a nursery. And that, the mortuary to nursery analogy, I take from Dr. Tim Inglesby's work. He's, um, he leads Firefighters United for Safety, Ethics, and Ecology. I've been informed by his work and many other folks' uh, works. Um, you know, so it's really not destruction. And a pretty good-sized group of scientists have been documenting this opposite of destruction, this beautiful creative force that comes in after wildfire. So that a lot of things that are interpreted as dead, like if you see little bottle brush leaves on the sequoia sempervirens, the, the tallest trees in the world, then, and interpreted as, oh my gosh, it's sick, it's dying, it looks different, it, it's all charred and here's these tiny leaves coming up. That's not the case at all it's just making a comeback and five years from now, it's going to be doing fine. The, the real matter at hand is time. Well, there's two real matters at hand, at least. One is our own safety, because our sense of time is that the very compacted emergency-based sense of time. You know, leave, leave now, do whatever you can, take whatever you can, but leave. But the forced sense of time is one of eons. It's one of centuries. It's one of a gradual comeback. And if our sense of time sort of overrides that, I want to see the forest come back now. I, I want to see, you know, not so much ash on the ground, but everything else on the ground popping up automatically right now, now, now. <laughs> 
if we if we do that and become impatient then yeah of course it looks like the forest is dead we're not giving it enough time but what i've been doing uh through the works independently following a lot of the works in the forests by um, colleagues scientists and friends is following the forests and their progress five years after a fire 10 years after a fire and where they are left intact where they are left to themselves i'm finding all manner of every species that's known to occur before the fire so the question is, you know, they're eating, they're breathing, they're sleeping. They're, I've seen foxes massage themselves, little faces looks like they're massaging themselves against newly growing incense cedar leaves. It's, I've seen Pacific fishers, spotted owls, right close to very, very intensely burned forest, even hunting there because of course, initially at least, before all the growth comes back, the mammals are really easy to see. So the sense of mourning then transforms into a sense of wild sense of discovery and a need for more immersion and a, a need for more learning. I'm also saying this as a companion to the fact that cultural burning is has been known I, I don't know if you've seen that film Elemental that was recently produced by Ralph Blomer. It's a group up in Oregon and, and filmed and directed by Trip Jennings. Um, and, and there's a line in, in Elemental that says, this is just, this is the beginning. It's coming right back. There's many lines like that, but, you know, we can dwell on the morning or we can M-O-U-R-N-I-N-G, right? The, that sad morning, or we can come back and, and keep revisiting year after year and seeing this incredible biodiversity unfurling, life unfurling. Mm -hmm. oh, this is such a, there's so many strong threads that you pulled on thinking about deep time versus our human impatience and I see that in so many ways when it comes to our desire for fast-paced solutions or what we think of, you know, what we think we need to do in terms of uh, the urgency of climate change and habitat destruction. And I think that even feeds into our desire for instant gratification, whether it's from forests after a burn or Amazon Prime, like it's all coming from the same place of this quick uh, feedback or quick shifts because our lives are actually quite short. And so I can, I can understand, I have a lot of compassion for us that we want to see things moving quickly. And maybe in that there's a type of security or safety and I think maybe that also stems from wanting to control the forest or control the land rather than working with the land's rhythms. And I want to kind of explore what that means in terms of forest policies, whether that's before a burn or after a burn. I know when Trump was in office, and I might butcher this a little bit, but I think in the farm bill, or maybe it was a climate change bill, there was something about that the forest, especially in California, needed to be logged so they didn't burn. And then, then there was also, uh, you know, the salvage logging where once a forest has been burned, cut all of the trees down because the forest is now a liability. And so I'd like to explore these policies with you, uh, and I'm just interested to hear how you think these are created, the short-term thinking, and what are the negatives when we choose policies like that versus if we are able to have patience when it comes to forest management? Yeah, you know, just the thought, it's sort of, I don't want to sound 
too lighthearted about it, but has everyone, and anyone ever thought of grass management? Grass burns too. Yeah, we never hear the term grass management. And that's because grass has no value, commercial value. Forest management has been born and brought up by an interest in commercial value. And so anything that goes hand in hand with forest management, you've got to be really aware of the fact that there is a commercial aspect there. So that I'm not saying it's the fox guarding the chicken coop, not quite, because a lot of forest managers are very well-meaning, very reliable people. On the other hand, the idea that all forests are have to be wide and open spaced with, with, with lots of light coming in between and they're too dense, they're, they're too crowded, that, you know, it's a judgment call. And it's a judgment call that several folks who have not been contested in the literature, including uh, William Baker, Mark Williams, Chad Hansen, Dennis Odian, these scientists have been calling into question the idea that all forests have to be widely spaced. Sure, some mature forests have that wide spacing. That's absolutely right. You walk into ancient redwood forests and you will see wide spacing between big mature trees. That's true. But what about the little youngsters coming up? They come up crowded and they outcompete each other and then, and then they, space out as time goes on. Again, back to time. And what about the areas that were managed with cultural burning? Cultural burning, which is very much close at heart to me because cultural burning is part of what many East Indian tribes do in, in the mountains in India, uh, burning every year, you know. That sets up the forest dynamic where there is some sort of below close to the ground very what we call bushy it's a bad term it's it's more like shrubs and herbaceous plants that are tall and maybe some short trees they sort of get trimmed and burned and the understory gets clear but is that the case for all forests anyone will tell you that you don't find quails there you don't find um fishers there where they are is where the shade is, where the ferns are, where the mosses are, where the lichens are. That's where you find, you're not finding them in these cleaned up, widely spaced forests. So this exclusive idea or imposition, if you will, that all forests have to be widely spaced and that's the only answer we have to work against fire and climate change, not only is it taking out way too many mature trees, live and dead, both. As I said before, you know, some people will think that the little growths on the limbs of trees and on the top branches is a sign that the tree is giving out and about to blink out. It's exactly the opposite. Redwoods survive like that. That little, those little bottle brush leaves are the key to redwood post-fire survival. So to, so to so actually hammering forests with what you mentioned, salvage logging after fire, but also thinning actions before fire is, is imposing our value system on forests without necessarily taking into account that both the so-called widely spaced, beautiful, big stature forests and the tiny little one trees, um, forests with smaller trees coming back in after fire, both of them existed. And there's a lot of evidence for that. I mean, that's how, how little ones, you see little ones carpet the forest floor at the beginning stages after fire. There's all this conifer regeneration and, and other regeneration. And of course, mammals in small birds are attracted to it and everybody else is attracted to that because now now everybody has food because the small mammals are back. So all those little ones are pretty crowded and 
you can't say they're unnatural just because they crowd. That's just how they grow. They f seeds fall to the forest floor and they grow. And then at some point, if they get outcompeted, some of them survive and, and the rest maybe not. But to impose this idea that, you know, we've got a widely space, create wide spacing around all these forests, it goes hand in hand with the commercial forest management because for anyone to survive doing that, they've got to take out some of the biggest trees. It, it's, it's just going to happen. I've seen it over and over again. I've been monitoring for over 10 years. You've got to take out some of the biggest trees in order to be able to make some kind of a profit on it, um, break even even, you know. So, so of course, a lot of big trees are taken out in the name of what they call thinning or fuels management. So there's the policy side of it. And of course, we've got laws, you know, that, oh, oh now, now we've got this idea that, oh my gosh, we've got too many dead trees. There's all these beetle kill trees. There's all these fire-related dead trees. Well, the problem with taking out all the dead trees or even leaving very few per acre is that those are the housing complexes. I call them, I call the standing dead trees the low-income housing of the wild because everybody lives there. Everybody makes homes out of it. There's cavity nesters of all shapes and sizes, birds and mammals that all make their homes in there. So now if dead trees are being removed, those are the housing complexes being removed. So, and of course, you know, the idea is that being circulated is that they burn faster and will give uh, rise to just a much bigger fire acreage. And that's actually been proved to be untrue. One of the examples of that is um, Dr. Sarah Hart did uh, a 12 year study. I think she's from Colorado. Now, she did a 12 year study of you know, dead trees versus not dead trees and areas that were dominated by standing dead trees. And over and over and over, she found that the areas that were dominated by you know, standing dead trees did not burn a whole lot differently from those which were all live trees. So it's these value judgments are being given and then we're tangled up with commercial extraction because just that's just the way it's been in the forests all, the, all this time. I think the question of economics is one that really rules forest management, of course. It's not about what's best ecologically. And I'm thinking about places I've been, especially in the Sierras and the forests that are east of the I-5 freeway of, for those of you who have driven around Northern California specifically. And I remember feeling so devastated seeing big fires roll in and then large trees, some of which were still alive, being taken and just clear cuts. Then you think about all of the erosion that then happens and the soil that becomes even more damaged by post-fire logging. And I think it's interesting, too, that there's no value placed on standing dead trees for habitat. And I'm thinking about 
deep time again. And when a forest is able to regrow, the fires bring new shoots and mushrooms like morels. And then the deer come in and they eat the morels and they poop and the soil gets the fertilizer from the animals that are living in these places and able to walk through more easily. And and then when you strip all that away, just thinking of the forest soil and what is able to regrow there over time, if we can, you know, just thinking about the depletion between logging and then pre-fire logging, post-fire logging, and so on and so forth. It's like, what are we setting up the forest to be able to do? It's almost like we're taking away some of their immune immunity strength to regrow in a healthy, vibrant way. And so, yeah, just considering all of the ways that it's detrimental to log post-fire. And I think it's really challenging because for those of us who are just living our lives and we aren't necessarily really engaged in policies or forest management, but we're seeing these things not really knowing why they're happening or maybe believing that it is better to clear cut these forests because we're scared, because our homes are there. And so I think it's hard for people to know how to stand and request from their local governments or state governments or even national governments of how to manage these forests in a better way. And so I guess maybe I'm getting to a question around how do those of us who live in these areas build relationships with fire and forest and how do we engage, whether if that's on a political level or a management level, like, how do we have our voices heard? Because I don't want us to be listening to this and thinking, oh, well, we don't have any power here. We just need to sit back and watch it all burn and watch it all be clear cut. And we don't have any say in how these places that surround us are tended for the future. Yeah. So, well, thank you so much for touching on so many things about connected to helplessness, I guess. I see incredibly powerful films like Elemental, and in fact, by the way, Bring Your Own Brigade, that very clearly documents in one instance how fast a fire, how much faster a wildfire can move through a thinned or even clear-cut forest. So that's not only is the carbon gone, but also we've got the carbon emissions related to that leading to more climate change impacts because once the carbon's gone at least a good fraction of it is going straight up into the atmosphere no matter which type of processing is done and that's climate change for tomorrow worse wildfires for tomorrow so that carbon accounting is not being done during this clear cutting operations but also the fact that the next fire can actually move much quicker and that's exactly what has happened in some of the tragic fires. And yes, one eye is turned to tragedy in the beginnings of both those very recent powerful films. However, I want to turn my eye to where do these homes clearly survive? Dr. Jack Cohen, who has done some of the seminal studies of homes structures surviving wildfire has said specifically you don't have to live in a concrete bunker in order to be able to have your home survive a wildfire it's such an it's imprinted that that message is imprinted into my brain as a sense of hope not that you want to plant yourself right in the middle of where historic wildfires have been you know, going, have found their path fast and furious. No, not necessarily. Don't be building right into that. But on the other hand, there's a sense of optimism. I know two people, I went ahead and jumped into some post-fire, local post-fire monitoring as soon as the 2020 Wallbridge fire in West of Hillsburg was over and found all these animals coming back in tremendous beautiful you know bird diversity mammals and 
specifically my area of focus was two homes, one that stood standing after the wildfire surrounded by redwoods, the other one that did not stand after wildfire, did not survive the wildfire, also surrounded by redwoods. What was the difference? And so for me, and in this case, the difference had a lot to do with watering around the home, irrigation, and the fact that they had some water just a few hours, they left the irrigation on and it was, um, watering not just around the house but I think the roof as well so so here you go there's there's a difference there there's the possibility of a structure stand remaining standing after the same wildfire there were two houses that were just basically next door to each other and so the other home also surrounded by redwoods but of course structurally very different and not having that irrigation set up to where it would um, irrigate the land immediately adjacent. So I, I, I really feel strongly about talking about some of those positive stories because what's being built up more and more is the fear of wildfire, that the trees are going to bring your house down during a wildfire. And what's been shown over and over is that where there's a crown fire over 100 feet from homes, those homes have a capability, capacity to, to stay standing if careful measures are taken. What are those measures? Where are these stories of, of post-fire survival? I'm seeing one or two crop up and I feel like focusing on those stories to help us beef up against the sense of intense fear that blames forests over and over again especially where the blame leads to so much deforestation that it actually makes climate change and future wildfires worse. So, and the other thing you were talking about is you were talking about the snags being left in place. Um, you know, the snags, people, oh my goodness, look at that standing dead tree, it's gonna burn up. It's an aesthetic value. It's an aesthetic, it's an imposed value. Those snags being housing complexes and you know, of course the woodpeckers started off, there's bugs, then there's woodpeckers following the bugs, then there's all these other cavity nesters following the woodpeckers, even the larger mammals, you know, sort of not, not bears, but definitely uh, some of the small ringtails and uh, flying squirrels, ground squirrels, excuse me, the tree squirrels, and even Pacific fisher. So these, these animals can come in and use these snags, the cracks in the trees, the faults, the flaws in the trees, the, the reason people take trees down. Oh no, look at that, it's, it's, it's gonna be sick. It's gonna die, we better take that down. All that stuff is being used. So on one hand, I, I wanna see the positive stories of homes and structures surviving wildfire. On the other hand, I wanna see see the positive stories of all these animals that rely on these standing dead trees and also the living trees with, with flaws and cracks in them where they can make their little spaces and, and raise their young. So as much space as we give ourselves, we can give to the other members of, of the earth. I guess there's a question that's coming up for me around fires and soil and thinking about the arguments people make like oh well the fires of today burn hotter and faster and instead of rejuvenating the soil or opening the seeds of redwoods or other species that need fire to proliferate that these hotter fires are actually killing the soil and they're uh, killing the microorganisms and the mycelium do you like it's so it's hard because part of me is like you know how much can we trust the anti-forest fire rhetoric because I think so much of blaming the forest and of blaming fire is to blame and otherize the earth and that is what colonialism and capitalism has done so well is to sever us from the living earth and to say it's it's bad it's evil it's dangerous it's not in 
uh, rhythm with us. Like we need to control it. We need to harness the power of it and be the dominant ones. And so, you know, when I hear things like, oh, fire is actually really bad ecologically, uh, because like I said, you know, one thing people are saying is that it's burning up the health of the soil. Do you think that in some cases that is true? Or do you think, like, how do you dissect comments like that? It's a great question. Thank you. I focused a lot on post-fire forests coming back and where there's a lot of mature trees. And maybe I should also focus on areas where there aren't that many mature trees, where they've been been taken out. In fact, when I think about it, sometimes on on the way to one of the sites that I regularly visit, um, basically all over California, from Sequoia in the south all the way to Lassen in the north, I'll pass an area where there's, there's very small trees left in place. And quintessential image is a big tree. It's been burned, okay? So there's a really large stump that's also been burned. But it was obviously cut before the fire because it's a stump that has already been burned over. So it's a huge stump. And then in the backdrop, there's a lot of small trees and they've all been charred to the to the nubs they've been charred all the way out by the fire and my attention was drawn to this juxtaposition between this this big once tree that turned into a stump during maybe one or another thinning project before long before the fire who knows how many years before the fire and then the little ones were left and the poor little ones didn't make it at all. And the reason this, I I was inspired by um, another colleague, Doug Bevington, who was searching for images. Do you see see this often? Do you see this thinned landscapes with the largest trees removed and what's happening? And I am seeing big, 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 what they call high severity, like very, very little survival of standing trees, high severity fire in these areas and over and over again, I will search around and sure enough, I'll find one or more, either like a big log, like so big it's fallen over, right? So it's taller than I am. The diameter is way, way more than my height. Um, Or I'll see this stump that's been burned over and it was obviously removed before the fire or I'll see both, I'll see a bunch of both. And so I've developed this habit of taking a photo of that with with this backdrop of tiny trees. And I can send them to you. I've just got, I'm just collecting them right now. It seems to me fair because, you know, the thinning was done in the name of forest health. We need to go in there and and see who's coming back there, what's growing there. You know, I, I need to give that a fair shake too because I don't focus there because primarily because it's silent. But that's just my impression right at that moment. Maybe it will come back. There is really no functioning forest that I can see the elements that I like, like um, a beautiful creek with ferns and mosses, lichens on the trees, some swath of live trees, sort of close to the heart of the flow of the creek in this riparian corridor, um, oaks coming back, little re-sprouts coming down uh, up from the ground, the root, root re-sprouts, those little signs, I'm not seeing them in those areas. So I sort of, my tendency is to just give up on those areas really quickly. But I'm that is an area that burned fast and furious. That is an area that burned hot. And that is an area that needs help. But those are areas that were already interfered with. And I don't know whether the soil is dead or not. I would have to come back. I mean, I, you want to? I want to trust it a little bit, and see if I can come back. You know, five years from then, and see what happens. For the most part, however, those areas are clear cut. Not only are they clear cut, but it's down to the bare soil at the end of the clear cut. And what that means, from my standpoint, is that. The mycelial network, subterranean mycelial network, is also being fragmented by this mechanical operation. And that's been proved in the literature over and over. So, 
you know, if it wasn't clear cut, maybe we would have a chance to see whether things come back. But years after a clear cut, I've seen four or five years after a clear cut, nothing is coming back. There's even trees being planted and they're dying. And because they need help in, in the beginning, the little seedlings need help. They need the shade, the moisture provided by the logs, etc. One of the regeneration studies, um, conifer regeneration studies, I just helped with as a sort of independent. I helped uh, Tanya Chi out in the field. She's a, a scientist I work with sometimes. And, you know, we were seeing so much regeneration in areas that hadn't been cut for a long time. It's a soil buildup. There's this slight sponginess underfoot. Whereas in those areas that burn hot and fast, that had a lot of evidence of previous recent cuts, pre-fire thinning, we were not seeing that comeback. Now, I mean, th those are small examples. All of what I have said are small examples. Is that happening everywhere? I don't know. Uh, I think it's worth looking at, but they are areas and we do have the data, for example, you know, how fast does a fire go? That's easily available. Where does a fire go the fastest? That's easily available. We don't have to sit, stand by and be helpless. We can take a look at those things and there's no need to sort of relegate forests to the, the forces that are at work right now, which is primarily the extraction industry saying, and understandably so in some ways, without any opposition, gosh, we better take what we can. It's the fires are just burning it. So, but the question is, what does that mean? Does that mean all the old growth? Apparently that's counted now. I mean, the Merced Grove of Yosemite National Park is being taken down as we speak. And I'm not just talking about, I'm not talking about the older trees, the very, very old trees, but really big trees, well over 20 inches in diameter are being taken down. I, I documented it very recently in the name of, oh my gosh, a wildfire will hit it and we need to do a fuels reduction. So since that's actually been disproved in the literature, uh, like it's sort of hit, hit or miss, if you take it down, we don't know if it's gonna go through an intense fire or not. It's sort of hit or miss. It's not really a proof. So then, you know, there is a lot that we can do, I feel. Dig in from this place, my bird, you say, do what you can. so much to this and I'm thinking about how the forests are really it gets hard to put a blanket solution on all forests like I think about with salmon habitat restoration and adding in coarse woody debris and there's these grants from the government or projects from Cal Fire or whoever. And it's very much like, okay, every hundred feet, you put a log jam in. It's like, well, that doesn't make sense for every creek. It doesn't make sense for every river. And I think that way about pre or post fire management, that each little section of forest is so different and has a different history based off extraction and when we think of managing into the future 
it's really hard to have these sweeping statements that that I think are being sold to us by government agencies or big organizations that are contracted out to do this work. And I also think, of course, it's used to log more. It's it's like these uh, excuses or justifications. And it makes me think of the debate over restoration versus conservation or proforestation versus uh, climate change mitigation. And I think because we are in a type of post-logging world at this point, and what I mean by that is if you think of the Pacific Northwest, California up to Alaska, what, 98% of the old growth forests have already been logged. So we're working with such a small amount of intact forest. And of course, the bigger trees most likely are the most uh, monetarily valued. And so when I think about um, how do we (laughs) manage at this point where, you know, some of these plots have been logged three, four, five times over and are regrowing plantation forest. And so hearing about your experiences where you're looking at forest with post fire with large trees and then I think okay well what is what are forests that have been plantation forest burned like what are the differences between forest and the ways they've been treated and then I think also yeah of course if you are a large logging company uh, or forestry company and you own hundreds of thousands of acres of either plantation forest or something like a plantation forest you want to quote protect your investment and it's not about an investment for seven generations or an ecological investment it's a timber investment and so I don't know if I have a direct question I'm kind of just in the mud of the complications of industry versus ecology and all of the different levels that so many forests and you know it's like how do you even say forest at this point because you know, okay, well, here, here's the Siskiyou National Forest versus the Lassen National Forest. It's like, well, these were just borders put on by the government. And, you know, even within those hundreds of thousands of acres forest, there could be, you know, 10 acres next to 100 acres next to, it's all so different, I guess, is what I'm, what I'm getting at. And I'm just sitting in the complexity of it and maybe just blabbing a bit and like the way that I'm processing it all and um, I'll stop now before I just keep going into this vortex and see if there's any way you can help uh, throw me a rope in this place I'm in. (laughs) Oh that's a great image by the way and I I like how you traveled from the streams to the to the plantations you know the stream restoration work with every hundred feet can can you can throw some conifers in and not every creek needing it. It There's this movement toward uh, process-based restoration um, in California, and I, I'm sure it's been moving through other states as well, where they are incorporating large and small woody debris into very deeply incised creeks, and in some cases, well, creeks feeding meadows, really. And in some cases, it's incredibly helpful Hand in hand with some of those projects, it looks like there's definitely some extraction element going on. So that, you know, so you've got the, almost like the creek restoration project ends up being, going hand in hand with some level of extraction in the forest. And some of it is timber and, but then of course, some of it is sort of hiding behind the veil of this beautiful restoration project that's happening. So what's really interesting is that we are actually speaking about forests more than we're speaking about grasses, grasslands, meadows, chaparral vegetation, all of which is incredibly important for biodiversity support, some of which comes back in stages at the end of a fire. The grasses and chaparral come back and you have these incredible, you know, biodiversity of chaparral nesting birds, like the green-tailed towhee and, and, and other towhees and the quails will come back to 
um, to inhabit this forest that is making its comeback in stages with the ground cover being very thick initially. Um, it, what's really interesting is part of these restoration projects that no one really talks about is, is herbicide application. Once these forests are cut, they're actually broadcast sprayed with herbicide. I just witnessed it earlier this year for the first time um, in, you know, in person. Before that, I'd heard about it and seen photos taken with the warning sign, the skull and crossbones warning, 1% glyphosate, um, do not enter. And then there's a date provided after which you can enter. Um, and then after the, the herbicide applications over, and I'm talking broadcast uh, applications, they're planting the trees and of course some of the tree plantations fail, which leads me to tree plantations and a recent piece that I've read, a, a paper that came out by uh, Dunn, Steve Dunn of Oregon and several of his colleagues. I don't think he's a lead author in that, although he's been a lead author in many other papers, is talking about plantations actually burning with such high severity, like they burn so fast and furious, so hot that they sort of burn, it sort of that influence spills over into the adjacent, adjacent forests that are they're not necessarily plantations. So that's the danger of a plantation is a, this juxtaposition, this very close cheek by jowl juxtaposition between the plantation forest and, you know, it's sort of a more layered, multi-layered, slightly more natural forest that's also been cut at some time in its history, like you're saying. Um, the danger is that that plantation is going to influence fire behavior in the next area. And the fact is that this plantation style is all we have when we hit bare ground. I mean, when people are trying to plant, they're just planting plantation style. I'm not seeing anything highly varied with a lot of beautiful trees. I'm not seeing the chaparral. I'm not seeing the native grasses. I'm not seeing the native slender stemmed monkey flower. I'm not seeing that comeback. I'm just seeing, oh, we want trees. Well, trees are not forests. You can plant any number of trees some of which will die, of course, because of the, you know, the sort of raising to the ground of the habitat that came before, but you can't plant a forest. And that's something I, I uh, that's a quote I got from Maya Menenes, who spoke at COP26. I just think that we just need to put our fear in the right place. We are in a quagmire. You're absolutely right about speaking out of the, you know, sort of uh, out of the quicksand of all this various strands of information, uh, some of which is a little slanted, if I may be allowed to be frank, uh, slanted toward you know the extraction paradigm. Oh my gosh, it's it's all dying. They're all unhealthy. We've got to space them out. We've got to take a lot more trees out. We've got to take out eighty percent of the trees. One publication this year. We got to take out more, 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 and the more, more, more is sort of interesting because nobody's looking at how, or very few people are looking at how fires behaved in those places where more and more has been taken out. It's actually just as fast and furious, if not more, than areas where it hasn't been taken out. So there's some cases where it actually slows down if a fire encounters you know, wet soil and moss and ferns, it is gonna slow down because it's all, all the moisture there. It's so interesting that there's such a heavy influence of fire behavior imposed by, you know, the treatments that have been in place and are in place. And yet we're not really recognizing that this is, this is really a human hand in fire rather than just fire out of control. It's the human hand in fire that we're not seeing. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Thank you so much for your work and your devotion and the way you can see through confusion and rhetoric and uh, the powers that think they are trying to wield 
a narrative that is really short-sighted and clearly on the side of industry using any excuse to log more and more. And it kind of feels like this coming from a space of desperation. Like I think about when settlers came to the West Coast of North America back, you know, 100, 200, 300, 400 years ago, and seeing the grandeur and these huge old growth trees that they thought would never end. You know, they they thought they could just keep cutting and cutting and there would be endless supplies. And I think at this point we realize, no, you know, there are limits. (laughs) Like the earth has limits, the forest has limits. And, And now it's almost like this addictive scrambling to just take everything we can get before something ends before um before we're not able to anymore it's kind of the same thing with like making money or even this type of post pandemic world some of us are seeing where it's like as soon as the restrictions are off it's like okay go 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 even though we saw a time when emissions were down but it's uh it's like binge until we can't anymore mentality. And I think it's really challenging to manage or I don't even like that word, honestly, but tend a forest well and right relationship when so, so much of the management is done in a type of what I see as a binge mentality. So, um, Yeah, it's really complex, but I think the more of us who start to decipher truths and understand ecological processes in deep time and also realize like the forest isn't for us. It's not just for us. It's not just for us to control or to use or to make money off of. Um, The forest has its own life lives plural I mean and and I loved how you said a forest isn't just trees and I see that with I was very much wrapped up in the reforest industrial complex in the redwoods and it was amazing to feel the urgency and the desperation to just plant trees plant trees plant trees and it's like well that's not how trees grow though and it's not how strong resilient trees grow for sure where they're placed in dry soil without their mother trees or under the shade of larger trees or having the connections through the mycelial mats like these processes are are very uh beautifully complex and I have definitely gotten to a place where for me I think focusing on protecting what is there and then allowing time to tend to a ecosystem and just kind of stepping back and saying you know we don't know what to do we don't actually have the answers and even though I can have compassion for us wanting to help um, I think in a lot of ways we're doing more harm than we are helping but of course when everything is based off economic growth at an endless rate it's really hard to give anything time because we want a rate of return now or in 40 years so, um, gosh, yeah, I'm so transported. I'm, I'm sitting in Alaska right now, freezing my butt off, really. It's really cold today. The north winds are blowing hard. The, everything's frozen. But I'm like very much back in the forests of California, thinking of their beauty and their diversity and just really praying for them that they'll find a way through our manic decision-making and uh, have space to grow into the future. It's really interesting because I see something that's missing. There's uh, two or three things that are missing in the conversation. One is that there's actually a lot of jobs that could be created um, through just the home hardening defensible space work that absolutely needs to be done more and more, especially because people are still rebuilding, people are still coexisting with 
areas that have a very strong history of fire. So if the focus was just homes and homes and survivals of survival of structures, there'd be a lot of jobs out there, probably more because you know, the focus is hands-on, what do I do? What are all the structural changes that I need to put in? It's not just one bulldozer, one operator, and one ground person and blasting through a forest. It's a lot of people with fine skills trying to work on home hardening and defensible space. And that's just, that's to me, that's the bright promise. That's the bright hope, which is that there are so many jobs that are available you know, so the economic standpoint is that same money can be put into areas avoiding, uh, you know, that will clearly lower the risks for, for communities. So to me, that's one big bright hope. And the other big bright hope is, is just going into some of those, I guess now we could say they're remnant because as you say, there's just so much has been removed, forests, just going into them and listening you know, listening to, you know, the trickle of water, to the sound of the birds, the birds warning, in, initially warning each other that you're there, and then they stop doing that because you're pretty still, you're going about your business, and they're going about theirs, and and maybe an occasional mammal, you know, some somebody climbing up the tree, a bear that shows up around the corner. There's the other bright hope, the fact that when you listen and you stop, there's still, we still have a chance of keeping things intact based on the nuggets that are left. If we could just let those nuggets grow, nuggets meaning small swaths of forest that have been fortunately, they're out of access, mechanical equipment, it's high risk there, it's a high slope, it's very rocky. Whatever the combination of miraculous circumstances is, they've been left alone. And sure enough, they support this high biodiversity and this incredibly interesting structure you're not gonna see elsewhere because it's all planed out. And the memory of the place, you know, that the place has for making its own comeback is sort of wiped out by the mechanical treatment, at least for 50 or 100 years. The 50 or 100 years we don't have in terms of extraction. And in, in the race to extraction, I just have to say with forest management, how much more is being taken out than is being put back? That should really sober us and give us a way to direct our hopes of, you know, if we leave it in place, those wildfires of tomorrow could, you know, not be exacerbated at the very least because all that carbon dioxide being pumped into the air, heating the planet by slow degrees, is going to be on the ground, you know, that that sort of the slogan, keep it on the ground, that um, folks, uh, colleagues have extended to keep it in the forest. Um, you know, so um, I, I just think that those are the sources of hope, you know, just you just try, try really hard to focus on and concentrate on the sounds and sights of the things that are most loved. Beautiful, Maya. I would love if you could read a poem or two. Oh, yeah, sure. I was thinking of this because I've done so much to translate the field into to verse, so to speak. Not rhyming, of course. Oh, this is a dedication. This poem is a dedication to... Um, Doug Bevington and his family and it's it's really sort of based on a, a photo of his daughter in a newly regenerating forest where the young trees are actually taller than she is and it was taken a few years ago and it's called cloaks of charcoal the burned trees are gathered by the hundreds each cloak of charcoal a sooty shipmast floating upright in a sea of new leaves and thick slices of earth. All around are expanses of cedar, fir, pine, blackened from their base to eye level, alive. Dawn brings a busy uproar, wrens, bluebirds, black-backed woodpeckers, lazily buntings, pygmy nuthatches, red-breasted sapsuckers. 
The first touch of sun clings to treetops like honey. A child is bending to pick miners' lettuce. Her father has found morels by Two Mile Creek. Hope that was tough as heat-cracked rocks grows soft, buoyant as leaves fluorescing from half-boned trees. The land holds all, a mosaic of fiery intensities, showers of ash on floors heaped with debris. The land's memory becomes its healing, its secrets, its breads, butters, and preserves, released. The child has found herself among monkey flowers, shooting stars, clarkias, and solitary bees. Constellations of seedlings stretching out from decades of sleep. She listens to mountain quails calling attention to the riches. She sees leavings, prints, where bear and deer have foraged. The walking animals have known for millennia, the insects for longer. Smoke runs through their instincts like greetings in a familiar language. Rivers of birds have always been riding in on the rivers of insects that swarm towards the source. The salts of burned branches have always been sinking, slow melting in rain. The larvae chew their way through woody tunnels. Foxes and ringtailed cats switch from perch to perch. Now the child too is singing. Hmm. Thank you, Maya. That was beautiful. Oh, well, this has been such an incredible conversation. I really appreciate your time and care. Thank you so much, Anna, and for your wisdom and the sharpness of your questions. You just, you must know so much about California, and I actually look forward to learning from you if you can, if you are going to visit someday soon. Oh, thank you. Wow. Well, I feel honored. And yeah, I really love working up here. It's the landscape is stunning, but there's nothing like the forest down not down south there. Such characters and each tree has such, uh, I don't know, like I, I'm kind of puffing up my chest as I'm imagining them. Um, they're grand, even the ones that aren't large yet. They, they have the ability to be such powerful ancestors so I miss them a lot and uh, I love being able to think about them with you thank you for listening to for the wild podcast the music you heard today was by Lake Mary Forest Vale and Bird by Snow for the wild is created by Ayana Young Erica Ekram Francesca Glassbell and Julia Jackson <laughs>